you've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about helping you to decide what to watch tonight. Another fabulous episode of The Screen Companion. Today's edition is about 70s exploitation movies with strong female characters. My guest today, Andrew, was with me when we did 80s Starring Ladies, and it only made sense to have you on for the 70s equivalent. It's only fair, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about ladies again. It's this wonderful duality. You explain things very well, but at the same time, whenever nakedness or feminine stuff comes up, you seem to be a little more guarded than some of my other guests. (laughs) (laughs) I don't celebrate it, I guess, in the same vein. That's right, because all those other guys, John specifically, just so misogynistic. (laughs) If you haven't already heard, on some episodes that you're not featured, and I talk to John, he's still bringing up Speed Racer. Yeah, I have heard one of the episodes, and I just thought, dude, like, it's been months. (laughs) Today's movies... Coffee from 1973, Switchblade Sisters from 1975, coincidentally both directed by Jack Hill. I'm not really into exploitation movies specifically, although I think I can appreciate any genre, but I wonder, Andrew, what do you think about the overall classification of calling something an exploitation film? I can see where I think for some it might be at least I'll say nowadays a more offensive term considering what specifically with black exploitation films, but they are what they are. I mean, they were movies with more violence than I'll say the average. They were definitely more sexual and more nudity than the average Hollywood release at the time. Coffee, for instance, and Switchblade Sisters, they're pretty bloody for the time, although there were bloodier movies before and definitely after, but that was just where the niche was for these types of movies. They were dirtier. There's almost like, just imagine watching Breaking Bad and then watching something like Jerry Springer. You know, there's a clear difference of like the trash value to it. Sometimes you just like watching trashy things. And I feel like exploitation movies were trashier, but because of that, they were able to do different movies and explore different themes that other films just didn't at the time. Yeah, and I wonder how many of these exploitation movies wouldn't be thought of in that way if they did have a larger budget. Like you said, there are plenty of sexier movies before these and after, and as far as violence goes, before and after, there's worse stuff. But exploitation in general seems to be a lot of lower-budget films, so it's the broader industry looking down their nose at these movies. They were outsider movies in the 70s. They were meant for just a more alternative audience in a way. With the black exploitation films, they were meant more for the black audience. When you look at who made them, it was usually white people who made the movies. <laughs> it was a business, for sure, to get these movies out there. They were just trying to make a quick buck, but they also did tell some pretty unique stories. There are diamonds in the rough in this genre, for sure. I just feel like exploitation, in quotes, just feels like a buzzword for marketing purposes. All movies are exploiting themes and subject matter to provoke thought or entertain or shock. 
if you have a movie about drug addiction, I don't care how you present it, you're still exploiting that aspect of people's experiences. You're putting it up on screen and you're making money from it. That feels exploitative. No, you're absolutely right. With these particular movies, I do think it's kind of how you put it. It's just Hollywood looking their nose down on them. It's not the big players doing it. You had talk of drugs in the first Godfather movie, and you had some pretty graphic violence in that, but it's considered a high art film. It's a masterpiece. Whereas with coffee, you have talks of drugs. There's lots of violence. It's looked down upon. With these two particular movies, coffee especially, there is the more exploitative nudity side of it, which you wouldn't see in something like The Godfather. I think that's where the line's drawn a little bit, where the trash value comes in. Now, between nudity, violence, and language, is there a hierarchy of it as far as what's worse or what's better? Do you see any distinction? On a personal level, I would say that violence would be the worst. We read the news. Violence is pretty terrible. As much as I love action movies, I also know that it is a horrible thing. I don't watch movies like Saving Private Ryan thinking, oh my god, this is so cool. Look at all these people being shot. It's like, nah, dude, like, that's horrible. You know, <laughs> like, that's some horrible stuff. And would you say if violence is the worst out of the three for you, that it also means you'll judge it more as far as how they're using it to be part of their movies? Yes. I know what I'm getting into when I watch Die Hard, and I'm actually watching it for the action because it is supposed to be a pure escapism. But when it's a movie that's supposed to be like Saving Private Ryan, that's how it was. So that's a historical showing of the violence. But if it's something where it's really horrible stuff and it glorifies it, that for me is just, it goes too far. Like slasher films, you know, you watch it for the kills, but sometimes it's just a little much and it'd be gross. And how about on a societal level? With America's list, nudity would be the worst, then language, then violence, because people get their knickers in a twist over boobs. <laughs> Take the first Captain America movie. A dude, a human being, gets thrown into a plane propeller, and you see it. He gets shredded, and it's a bloody streak in the sky. But there's no boobs, because that would make it a hard R immediately if... Peggy showed her bosom. In a societal sense, I think that language might be the worst out of the three. People saying what is and isn't acceptable to say or talk about or how you talk about things. When I first mentioned it, I was talking about explicit language, but now I'm just starting to think in terms of just words, what you're saying is more problematic. Mm. I can understand that. Let's get the ball rolling with Coffee from 1973. It's starring Pam Greer in one of her earlier roles. She's the titular Coffee, who is a nurse by day, and at night she's blowing away drug dealers. Mm-hmm. All because one of them got her prepubescent sister hooked on smack. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really simple plot. But the actual execution of it and the disguises she puts on and the intrigue and the politics, it's only 90 minutes long, but there is a lot of stuff going on in this movie. Would you agree? There is a lot. I mean, it's a very layered film, considering that at its face value, it's a revenge flick. 
And what were your initial feelings after you saw this? Well, I definitely was glad that I saw it. The thing I like about watching the exploitation movies of the day is like you can see where Tarantino gets his stylings. I'm thinking, all right, 1973, when did Death Wish come out? That came out a year after. It's the precursor to what we would, I think, consider to be the classic revenge film. We have some entertainment critics now that throw out terms like Mary Sue to describe a trend of increased female focus in movies in the last, oh, five or six years, let's say. Are you that critic? I am not that critic, only because I wouldn't say I'm popular right now, but I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm thinking of Force Awakens as being a good example of it. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really heard of Mary Sue's until people started describing that that way. Applying that school of thought to coffee, do you think those same people would have a problem with it? I don't think they should. With Rey and the Force Awakens... Everyone likes her immediately. She's great at everything she does. Um, or at least you're supposed to like her immediately. Yeah, we're supposed to and, and all that stuff. But even the characters in the movie all love her immediately. The only thing that she has going against her through the entire trilogy is she has some moments of self-doubt. And that's the only thing that makes her not a Mary Sue, but she's still a Mary Sue. With Coffee, I don't think you can apply that to her because... She does have some serious doubts about what she's doing. The whole thing is it's like I'm in a dream and just working on instinct almost and pure anger. But she definitely has her flaws. She does get beat up a bit throughout this movie, which normally doesn't happen to Mary Sue's. They usually end up largely uninjured. She's got a lot of trauma in this movie. Mm -hmm. Even with the opening scene where she blows a dude away. In the very next scene, she's at work, and it looks like she's only barely holding it together. She's clearly rattled by what she's doing. She's just operating on rage and instinct. She gets chased out of a house by a woman bigger than her and then gets called a lousy bitch. <laughs> that wouldn't happen to Ray. Ray would not be called a stupid bitch. No, a lousy, lousy bitch, yeah. Okay, lousy bitch, my bad. With what she's doing and everything, nah, it's, it's not too much empowerment, it's not too much anything. Especially considering the genre of the movie she's in. This is an exploitation film. It's going to be next level. If you're watching the movie, be prepared for it. She does some incredible things. I don't know if I'd go as far as to call them heroic, but definitely badass. And in order for that to exist... There is a certain level of, I don't know, call it extra empowerment going on, but I think it's on the same level as Commando or Predator, where you got these men and women just blowing suckers away, and that can be okay. And she does it well. Pam Greer said it best in a 1973 interview, where she said, I'm not faster than a speeding bullet. I don't fly. I get out of situations on my own. I'm always getting beaten up or something happens to me. I take the licks. I get hurt. I even broke my leg on coffee and we finished the last two weeks of shooting with a cast on. We just painted a boot on it to match the other boot. But a superwoman wouldn't get hurt. So that's why she was sitting down in the final scene. 
That's interesting. Assuming they shot it chronologically. Which Jack Hill says in the commentary track, I think for both movies, that he tries to do it chronologically as much as possible. He says in general, wouldn't you want the actors to be able to play it in the actual succession of events? I think that would help with the acting. That does make sense. Especially with a lower budget movie like this where I feel like you can get away with it a little easier. Because if you're doing like a Bond film, if you're going back and forth between countries, you're not going to want to film chronologically. Besides individual scenes or moments, are there any overarching themes or recurring instances that you took to task with this movie? The main thing I had an issue with was when Coffee's good boyfriend gets beaten up. One of the hooligans, he knocks her a good one, and she's kind of out. And he rips her shirt open and presumably grabs her boobs off, you know, it's off camera, kind of molests her a bit and then leaves. That bothered me, but it's also sometimes that happens just to show that it's like, these aren't just bad guys, they're also really bad guys. They'll do anything because they want to do it. And it feels in character too, and makes it even more awesome when that guy gets his comeuppance later on. Mm-hmm. But you did mention that it is off screen. I think that shows some nice restraint and that, okay, you're going to see a lot of skin and some lascivious action, but you don't need to show it all the time. It was a moment where I even mentioned like, oh, that's nice that it's off camera. It's not just showing you everything. It's not this gross shot. We're not supposed to like that as an audience, even if we see boobs. She's being assaulted. We're not supposed to enjoy that. So I'm glad he didn't show it as though it was supposed to be cool. What were some of your favorite scenes and performances in this? I did like the good guy cop. There are a lot of stereotypes in this movie where he played like the only good cop on the force. He played it to a T. Pam Greer in this movie was really good. I liked King George. The music of both of these films is really great because they don't have these orchestral tracks. They don't have these beautiful scores. They just have like like funk (laughs) it's like a soul and funk track that's just backing this movie king george's theme song is great it's absolutely great it's great but it also makes me shake my head a little bit i like that the music's so specific and it's not just all licensed songs but it's like come on why does king george need to get name checked in his own theme (laughs) (laughs) he's not just name checked they also tell you exactly what he is you just hear george he's a pimp (laughs) it's so funny it's the flavoring to the movie like it's part of the genres they do that when did you see coffee for this i watched it yesterday take it or leave it you still remember it a day later oh i'm gonna remember that one for a while Pam Greer, she's the standout. But also, I liked Brunswick, her uh, councilman boyfriend. The way that actor does it, he finds a way to be dignified, even though the substance of what he's doing and saying can be pretty slimy. Mm -hmm. And I wrote down a line that I loved from him. He says, black, brown, or yellow, I'm in it for the green, the color of the buck. 
Yeah, I really loved that line. Because he says it in a way that comes off like, why do I need to explain this to you? Don't judge me. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm just getting my peace. And then, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that wonderful cat fight at King George's party. It was... um, You loved it, Andrew. Come on, just say you loved it. That's where the exploitation elements come in for sure. I will admit I liked it because it was pretty funny. And vicious. Well, because it started off so innocently and then like someone accidentally dumps a bunch of stuff on Pam Greer, which honestly gives her an out to go do something cool and screw a drug dealer over. And then she comes back to the party and then just starts this cat fight. And I think what made it so funny was the nudity. (laughs) It was. It was comical. Because, like, at one point, like, one of Pam's titties pops out. (laughs) But she's wearing, like, a really tight dress, and it's very low cut. It makes sense, you know, all that action for it to fall out. And I like that apparently the director didn't tell her, look, Pam, keep that titty out the whole time. Of course, in the reality of the moment, she would try to cover herself, and she does at a certain point. You don't want it out there, because everyone's just going to be laughing or staring at it. But I loved how it got to a point where she just started intentionally ripping people's dresses off to show their titties. And some of these people, there was one of them that really wasn't doing anything and didn't deserve it, but she got walloped and then her dress was ripped. And for people listening who haven't seen the movie yet, just a little more context. Coffee is pretending to be a high-class hooker, and she's at a party with these other prostitutes who see her as a threat. Because she's the new girl, she's the popular one. And so they get catty with her and they try to get back at her. Like Andrew mentioned, spilled drinks on her. And then the craziness ensues. So it's not just coffee looking at women sideways and wanting to get into a fight with them. There is a lot of motivation behind what's happening. There is, but it's mainly to show boobs to the audience. And for any MASH fans, Vitroni who's one of the bad guys in the movie who's enjoying the cat fight, was Dr. Sidney Freeman in M.A.S.H., the eminent psychiatrist who brought Hawkeye back from the brink a couple times. I know my dad listens to this show, and he's a M.A.S.H. fan. He will appreciate that you mentioned that. (laughs) However, I never liked M.A.S.H. Let's go back to the cat fight for a second, because (laughs) I just got to mention that a part of me is glad that I saw it as an adult. Because 12-year-old me would have fainted from how many boobies (laughs) popped out during that scene. (laughs) Yeah. And I wouldn't have been able to appreciate it on a film level if I saw it as a kid. So I'm glad I saw this as an older person. Well, I'm glad too. What are some general criticisms you have for this movie? Well, the thing that comes with these types of movies is that they're not just made cheaply. Usually the actors really aren't the best. It's very over the top. The cops are over the top. Her clean-cut cop boyfriend, for instance, he plays it so stereotypically to a T. Everything is very cookie-cutter. He's pretty stiff, right? Yeah. All the performances are very stiff. Pam Greer, she's great, but she's working with probably not the strongest script in the world. It's a good story. But don't go in there expecting higher caliber actors. 
most of the goons were okay. Yeah, they were goonish. Vitroni did well, and I'd say King George was pretty good. The rest of the prostitutes, no, not really. It was mainly the side characters, or just the one-offs that you would see here and there. Struggling actors who just needed a part. And they probably did. And as much as I like Brunswick, the number of scenes he actually shares with coffee are really just a handful, aren't they? It's like three. So, like you said, she doesn't get an opportunity to play off of anybody that's matching her or exceeding her acting. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Because then you're just focused on the other person's performance, and she can only do so much with these stiff-as-a-board people. Good segue. Speaking of stiff-as-a-board, there is a lot of nudity in this movie. Oh my gosh. Especially Pam Greer. (laughs) Yeah, there is a lot of nudity. I was waiting for that to catch up with you. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I haven't done a comprehensive read of everything she's spoken about the movie. But whenever people ask her in interviews about the nudity she's done in movies, especially this, Foxy Brown, she always takes an approach of saying, I don't see what the big deal is with nudity. It's just another tool. It's part of her femininity and part of her characters. What do you think about the nudity in this movie? And are you more on Miss Greer's side about the outlook on it, or does it feel a little bit more exploitative to you? I'd say with hers in the movie, it is more of a story element. Okay, so like, I'm trying to think how many times you see, she does do a good amount of nudity in this. There is a love scene in the beginning of the movie, but you don't, I don't remember seeing it then, but during her first scene where she's posing as like a strung out prostitute to kill somebody, one of her boobs has just popped out of her dress but it makes sense because they're about to get frisky like they were about to get frisky but you know she wanted to you know she's not gonna give the guy his jollies and then kill him she just wanted to kill him when she strips for king george that one i think was the only one i would say was gratuitous in the film other than her getting her shirt ripped open during the assault scene but that's also something where you can say that that was a plot element Something to show the goons were really bad goons, or at least one of them was. Definitely a trait that sticks with that character played by Sid Haig. Yeah, definitely. It proves to be his undoing in the end. (laughs) So I'd say for Pam Greer's, the only one that you could peg as unnecessary is when she strips for King George. But it is also one of those things where it's, okay, like, she's not doing it because she necessarily wants to. She's doing it because she's trying to get that job as a high-class prostitute, so it's like she's showing off the goods. Yeah, I mean, she couldn't go into that scene wearing a button-up shirt. King George is going to sample the goods, too. The way nudity is depicted and the amount of it for coffee, I think it should be more on a positive side. The very first time I saw this movie, It was something I actually thought about immediately after the movie was over. The amount of nudity in her specifically, and is it just sexual exploitation, or is it more on the empowerment side? And I came down on the ladder, ultimately, and I cemented my thoughts on it from the second watch. Because when you look at the situations in which she gets naked, 
It's in every conceivable way possible in the plot. She uses it as a honey trap. She gets assaulted. She gets naked in a love scene. And we see all this range of it being used. And I think if it was more just, hey, here's a titty flash, then I would think it was just exploitative. But in a way that me being a man, I don't think I could really see with a male character the feminine wiles and having a different set of tools. It really just builds a more fully fleshed out character, no pun intended this time. (laughs) A fully fleshed out character. And also it helps that she's a very smart character. She's very crafty, wouldn't you say? She definitely knows what she's doing. I mean, I think you bring up a good point where the only nudity that you see in the movie of hers that wasn't in her control as a character was when she was knocked out and the goon felt her up. Everything else, she knew exactly what she was doing and she was very intentional on what she was showing and all that stuff. Do you have any random asinine thoughts or trivia for our segment of Rat? I will say it makes me want to go watch Foxy Brown. I recommend it, although I don't think it's as smart as this movie was. And if I recall, she doesn't get naked as much. That's okay as long as the story is good, but I mean, you're already saying it's not as smart. So two actors in this movie ended up in RoboCop. You can name at least one of them, can't you? It has to be Brunswick. No, King George. King George? Was he the... He's the lieutenant. He's the lieutenant? (laughs) Oh, wait, yeah, no, Brunswick is too old. Because he almost looks like that one black board guy who gave the thumbs up at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he looks like him. Okay, so the lieutenant... Yeah, dude. And then the second guy... I didn't catch on the first watch, but on the second watch, I noticed it. So at the end, Coffee's in a car with a goon and a couple of crooked cops. The crooked cop in the back with the mustache, who's giving her the supposed smack. That guy is the guy at the drug lab doing the deal with Boddicker when Robocop shows up and arrests Boddicker. That's crazy. I didn't didn't notice any of those. Is it playing in your mind now as you think about it? Yeah, it is. I forget the other character's name, but he's like Jimmy or Johnny. Would you shoot this mother effer? He's that guy. Yeah, I remember that. That's crazy. I did a tally of how many women get naked or semi-naked. I counted six. Coffee's full name, as mentioned by Jack Hill, who directed and wrote the script, is Flower Child coffin because he wanted to give her a ridiculous first name so that she would want to use the nickname coffee (laughs) that was a good plan because it worked let's break for a sec so i can mention a few things about the podcast we're on podbean google podcasts spotify amazon music youtube and more please like comment and subscribe Reach us directly via the screen companion at gmail.com. Let us know which of our recommendations worked for you and what topics you'd like us to do next. Also, if you want to support TSC with a few bucks, 
head on over to Amazon and get the host's sci-fi novel, Traversal, The Weight of Worlds. After hearing me complain so much, perhaps you're curious how I'd tell a story. Available in both digital and print formats. And thank you for listening. Let's move on now to Switchblade Sisters from 1975, also directed by Jack Hill. It's a movie about a girl gang that's a subdivision, I guess, or sub-gang of the Silver Daggers, which is a gang of guys. They're all high schoolers. But there's a new girl in town named Maggie, who originally is on the good side of the female gang leader, Lace, but Lace starts to not trust and be very jealous of Maggie and her rapid rise through the ranks of the gang. It's a bit of a tragedy, isn't it? It's a bit Shakespearean. I think that's overselling it, but there are very dramatic points in the film, yes. It has a lot going on for it, considering what it's about. Reading the tagline, you wouldn't think that there are so many twists and turns. Half of the animosity Lace feels toward Maggie ends up being a misunderstanding. It is tragic in that sense, because it is just all in her head. It is jealousy. Maggie really doesn't do anything to deserve it. At all. Something very notable is Robbie Lee, who plays Lace. Her method of acting in this movie, did it grate on you, or did you like it? It was extremely grating. (laughs) Then you agree with Jack Hill, who said that in 90 minutes, it's all right, but if you have to do a whole movie with her talking like that, it gets old pretty quick. These girls are being bossed around by essentially someone who comes off like a spoiled brat. A high school gang of girls who are just causing random trouble in the neighborhood and just being these little punk kids who are maybe tagging graffiti and stuff. There is a character who legitimately says, I lost my eye for this gang. She's Patch. Like, she has an eye patch. There are real stakes involved. Like, people are dying. And speaking of the gang member nicknames, It feels a bit like a parody, because they're not very creative with the names. Like you said, she's Patch, because she's got an eye patch. A guy later on in the Silver Daggers, he's Hook, and he has a crooked penis. Yeah. And then a chunky girl in the Dagger Debs, she's called Donut. I felt really bad for Donut, too. Yeah, she was just a pawn in this big sweeping game of theirs. I thought Robbie Lee did a great job because she just came off so freaking crazy. But I also had to laugh half the time because she sounds like she's gritting her teeth and spitting her lines out. It's almost like she's practicing being a ventriloquist. It's not the easiest performance to watch. It comes off as just very childish and annoying. Oh, hey, doesn't it come off like what you would imagine a voice actor when they're doing a cartoon role, the way they behave in the studio when nobody's watching. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. It's like, be as broad as you want, clench your jaw all the time. It doesn't matter because it's the voice. And she does have a memorable voice. Quentin Tarantino, he loves this movie. He loves, I think, most of Jack Hill's movies. But he loved this movie so much that he re-released it in the 90s under his Rolling Thunder label. 
do you see any parallels between coffee and switchblade sisters to tarantino stuff just the feel of it yeah i do see the parallels if anything it's early tarantino it's not later tarantino that this movie's like and it's been a while since i've watched his early stuff some of the dna that's shared between these movies i think tarantino really shines a spotlight on his female characters when he has them he does shine a spotlight on them but a lot of his movies are pretty male-centric, except for Jackie Brown, which is, like, the only one I haven't seen. Oh, you haven't seen that one? I haven't seen Jackie Brown. I've seen all of his other movies. Oh, I really think you would like that movie. Yeah, I know. It's like, I've only heard good things about it. I've just never gotten around to watching it. Now, he said about this movie, because he is such a booster for it, talking about the script, you can flip it to any page, and there's, like, a great piece of dialogue going on. Are there any lines from this movie that really stuck out to you? That's the thing, like, not really. I didn't think much of the dialogue. I thought it was kind of funny when one of the cops called Donut Fat. The ending of the movie, it gets more memorable with the lines. And I mean, like, the ending ending, when everything just goes to hell, and Maggie's doing her spiel at the end, that's memorable. But in terms of just dialogue through the film, not really. Not to me, at least. Yeah, I was surprised he said that, considering how well-known his dialogue is for being specific. I don't think of this movie as a one-liner machine, although I do like something that the head of the Silver Dagger says, Dominic, when he's in the bedroom with Lace and she says she's pregnant, and he is not happy about it, and he gives this wonderful... I think half of it's just the line delivery, but he says something like, You were lousy. This gang was lousy. It's all lousy. Yeah, he was just clearly having a bad day. He was a piece of crap. I really hated it. I know we're supposed to hate him, but the part I remember the most from that scene was when he threw a wad of money at her. He was like, You know what to do, or you know how to take care of it, and just walked out. I'm like, Good God, man. <laughs> You're such an ass. That was his version of being responsible. I guess. What do you think about the depiction of gangs in this? Is it as uh, ridiculous as something like the Warriors? It was very ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It's not just gangs. These are high schoolers. Supposedly. Supposedly high schoolers. They look like the high schoolers you'd find in Greece. No joke, some of the guys in these gangs look like they're 40 years old. What are they doing at a high school? <laughs> you know, I will admit one thing that I liked about it was to explain how old the enemy crabs looks, Dominic did make a remark about how many times he's been held back. But I mean, goodness, he must have been held back like 10, 15 years. <laughs> None of them almost look like high schoolers. Like some of the girls look like they could still be in high school. Lace looks like she could be a high school student. Maggie, no. Patch, not really. Maybe Donut, but uh, most everyone looks um, way out of high school. This brings up an interesting point. In foreign movies, when they have young characters, they're usually acted by young actors. And it's hard for me to say if that's good or not, because then 
inevitably they put him in adult situations and it can come off as a bit nasty. But then you have stuff like Switchblade Sisters where one scene, one of the Dagger Debs is being prostituted in a men's restroom. If she looked like a teenage girl, I would have more trouble with it than her being probably in her 20s like I think she was. I will admit that's one of the things about these movies that I appreciate is that they are adult actors and actresses. I don't watch it, and I doubt you do, Frank Euphoria. I've heard of it, but no, I don't watch it. Because that show, I don't watch it, but... That's not my bag. It's not my bag either. But I've heard about it, and I've heard about how hardcore it can get. I mean, if they got, like, actual teenagers for it, that'd be awful. I appreciate that in how, I guess, Hollywood does films, is they just cast people who are supposed to look young enough to be in high school, but, I mean, we know they're not. I think it's a difference between American and European stuff. Europeans are a bit more auteurs. I think they care more about the craft of filmmaking, and let's find the truth in this moment. So let's use a real 14-year-old girl. Obviously, it's got to be the fact that I am an American, but I appreciate that a lot of American movies, it comes more from a place of fantasy. This whole movie is one big fantasy world, so it's easier for me to buy people that look so much older playing teenagers, because the whole thing is artificial, but in a good way, for me at least. It's a pretty ludicrous movie at the end of the day. Do you have any favorite scenes or performances? I really liked when Maggie, I don't remember the name of the gang, but when she met up with her old neighborhood gang, they were all just a bunch of commies. (laughs) Yeah, militant black women. It was great because she walks in there with some other of the Switchblade sisters, Dagger Debs, and I'm looking at their base of operations I'm looking at, like, in the background, I'm like, is that a picture of Mao Zedong? <laughs> yeah. They have their conference table right by that poster, and I'm like, oh, okay, so they're communists. That whole scene was pretty great. And one of them lays out the little red book. Yep. Yeah. It's like, oh, how do you know these people? Oh, I used to date her brother. Then he got off by the cops. And just next scene, that was it. That's all you needed to know about how she knew how white Maggie, white blonde-haired, blue-eyed Maggie (laughs) was in good with these militant black women. She used to date one of the brothers, and he was killed by the cops. What a missed opportunity to have Pam Greer play the head of that militant group. Everyone else is looking old, so why not? To be fair, I don't think that militant group were supposed to be high schoolers, right? I just kind of assumed that everyone was supposed to be high schoolers who was in a gang, because that's how it was portrayed. For the sake of consistency, considering they all pretty much look the same age, I guess you either have to say that they're all high schoolers, or admit that none of them look high school age. I just assumed they all went to school together at some point. Maybe they're in college now. I really think that Joanne Nail, who plays Maggie, she had a great range, and I'm really glad She could play a bit more subtlety, considering she's playing off of Robbie Lee, who is very over the top. There are moments where Maggie's just in the edge of the frame, and she's pensive, and she's not the focus of the scene. You can see that she's acting and thinking. But then in those in-your-face moments where she has to make proclamations and be badass, she can speechify as well as anybody. 
She had the best performance, I think, in the movie. Was it just me, or does this movie just come off as super bleak? There's some pretty hardcore stuff in this film, pretty problematic stuff. It's high school gangs. We talked about the gang leader, Dominic. One of the big points of the movie is that Lace is jealous of Maggie and feeling threatened by Maggie because Dominic has an interest in her because it's like Lace and Dominic are going out, but he's sick of her. I don't blame him. Pretty early in the movie, Dominic shows up to Maggie's apartment and rapes her and then just bounces. The scene was not just problematic for that, but it was also one of those things where it's one of those older scenes where she's resisting and then like, I don't know if you picked up on that, but it seemed like she kind of went with it afterwards and then was just angry about it. It felt like a Connery Bond moment. Yeah, it felt like that. The rest of the movie, they don't bring that up anymore. In fact, like, Maggie is still almost like trying to get on Nick's good side, but I think that she's never interested in him after that. Really? You don't think so? I don't know. It didn't, it seemed like she just more was about rising through the ranks. She's just a girl who moved in from the other side of town. We don't know where she's from, but she's good with like a chain weapon thing. So we know she's a badass, and then she's in this gang. Man, is she, like, trying to get in good with everybody? Is she playing both sides? I really didn't know Maggie's motivations. She's definitely a good schemer. She is. She is, and it was to the point where in the roller rink scene, I did wonder, like, did Maggie set up a double cross? Is she the reason why this is happening? Lace is paranoid because she thinks that she's being edged out because Nick just doesn't He's not interested in her anymore, but I'm watching the movie thinking like, man, is Maggie trying to take control or is she trying to just get these rival gangs to kill each other? I didn't know what her end game was really until later in the movie. There's at least one moment after the rape scene where Dominic is trying to, aka Nikki, is trying to get something going with Maggie. And I believe she says to him, we're not going to do anything while you're still with Lace. you got to square that away first. Now, whether she is sincere about that or not, as loyal as Maggie comes off for most of the movie, she also comes off as a bit naive because she seems to have this samurai code. And it's like, well, I'm not going to cheat on my girl. However, it would be okay. She thinks she could just date him if he broke it off with Lace, considering Maggie and Lace are supposed to be besties. That's just like, I think, typical high school drama stuff. Everyone kind of has a plot point like that. Oh no, she's my friend, but I like him. Uh. And Jack Hill mentioned in regards to the rape scene, Maggie is attracted to him. Definitely in that scene, she wasn't. If she had her way, they wouldn't have done anything, so definitely it was rape. It's this larger conversation of, if he didn't rape her, then Dominic, you could see him in a better light. He's a good person. But this movie, the cast of characters are reprehensible. None of them are the good guys. Whether he did it or not, he's still a scumbag. Maggie's a scumbag, too. They're all scumbags. Let's not forget that. <laughs> donut's not too terrible. No, donut's a, donut's a scumbag. 
They're all scumbags. Yeah. At the very beginning, they get in on the elevator and accost a guy, a repossessor, doing his job. Yeah, but the repossessors, they, um, they can be jerks, too. I wouldn't know, and if I had to bet, I would say neither do you. No, I don't know either. <laughs> but they're never portrayed well in movies or anything like that. In the greater world of this movie, like I said, it's so bleak. All the characters live in rundown environments. The cops move precincts because they're just done with a part of town. And you've got Krabs, who has a youth center front for his drug dealing. Vitamins, yeah. He gives vitamins to the kids. And even on a newspaper headline early in the movie, it says that there's a garbage strike going on. Everything is in chaos. And Jack Hill said that part of what he was thinking about when making the movie were the Nixon years. And to him, the movie was a bit of a commentary on where he felt like the country was going to be going in 10 years. That's fascinating. But it all is made ludicrous by the fact that they're all high schoolers that are like legitimately running the city. Like that section of the city, it's teenagers. Even at the high school, they're running the classrooms. The principal is scared of them. And that's something that bothers me about the movie, is how apathetic the cops are. Yeah. There's even a part of the movie where one could argue they could have saved somebody's life if the cops raided this warehouse a bit sooner. But one of the cops says specifically, let's wait a second and let them kill each other first. I think one of the reasons why they're apathetic is because they're all high schoolers, they're minors. They do these little scuffles out in public, they can only keep them for a couple days, and so they know it doesn't really matter. If I remember that cop, it wasn't just that he wanted them to kill each other, he wanted something to stick, and murder sticks. They find a particular person with a switchblade and bloodied and next to a dead body, but all the witnesses are gang members. Now they're no longer the Dagger Debs or the Jezebels. Couldn't that person just say it was self-defense, and all my friends in my gang will say it was self-defense? That's true, but they didn't really do that at the end. That was some minutia for after the movie. Both these movies, I would have loved to have like a 10-minute epilogue. Yeah. Because at the end of Coffee, she has killed so many dudes. Do you think she's going to get away with it? Yes, I think she will. The cops wouldn't necessarily want to arrest her because she's killed crooked cops. The whole thing could expose their whole operation, so maybe they would just write it off as a loss. Oh, yeah, that is a good justification, how cynical it is. That's a perfect ending. In that universe, unless the individual takes control and gets revenge, nobody gets what's coming to them. So you're right, she should get away with not being prosecuted. Because they make their implications that it's like a really, really big operation. Like, she didn't take the whole thing down. She just took down the people who have affected her life the most. I think they could just be like, oh, okay, you know, we'll let this slide. Well, time for rat round two. Andrew, please tell me you got some rat this time. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up a couple of the actresses just to see what's going on with them. Most of them, I think, were just in a bunch of things in the 70s. A lot of, like, Jack Hill stuff or just 
exploitation movies then and then just didn't really go anywhere beyond. The actress who played Lace, I think she did like voice work on Bobby's World. My rat for you, one of the Silver Daggers, the gang member known as Hook. Did you recognize him as Don Pinciotti from that 70s show? Oh no, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And what's so funny is he's so spineless in that 70s show, but he's a hood in this movie. And it's so funny that it's 1975. I would love somebody to do a deep fake and bring in Topher Grace and some of those actors so you could have them all at the same high school together. (laughs) That'd be funny. That's wild. That's Don Finci. Yeah. He was funny in that 70s show. I like Don. Hey there, hi there, go there, let's go. But even then, he was still the more spineless scumbag of the group. He was like the second in command, and then he got run out by all the women. That's true. He got emasculated. Maybe he changed his name to Don Pinciotti and moved to Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. That is some great backstory. My second bit of rat for you. I counted two, possibly three, semi or fully nude ladies in this movie, so far less than coffee. Yes. I counted four. Oh. In the ending scene, when Maggie's shirt gets ripped open, I think there is a flash of a boob. I am not ashamed to admit this, because I did it in the name of this podcast for scientific purposes. I went frame by frame, and all you ever see is, like, the very bottom of the boob. Oh, okay. Then never mind, then. It's just a sliver. I think you could get away with that in a PG movie. You could. Okay, never mind. Now, my favorite segment, TLDL, Too Long, Didn't Listen. I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Ready. Andrew, which movie suffers more from feeling like a 70s period piece? Switchblade Sisters. Who's more interesting, Coffee or Maggie? Hmm. That's a tough one. Because Coffee, you always know what she's up to and what she's planning. You know all her motivations from the jump. There's no mystery to her. With Maggie, I legitimately didn't know what she was up to until about two-thirds of the movie through, because I didn't know if she was genuine or not. I'm going to go with Maggie because of that. Which movie has better drama? Coffee. Which movie has better action? Coffee. If you had to teach a women's studies class, which one would you rather include in your curriculum? Oh, it'd be coffee, 100%. If exploitation is a dirty word, which one felt more exploitative? Hmm. A big way for me to think about it is, like, how much nudity is in there. Coffee clearly has more nudity. But with Switchblade Sisters, it's supposed to be high school nudity. And the overall ridiculousness of the movie plays a factor into it because coffee although it's over the top at times is much more grounded than switchblade sisters yeah i'd agree with that and this isn't casting aspersions at switchblade sisters but between the two women are far more victimized in switchblade sisters than coffee 
And that's the big reason why I wouldn't teach that one in women's studies. Based on these scenarios, which is the best way to watch Switchblade Sisters? On a date? With family? With friends? Or by yourself? I'd say with friends. Is Coffee a better revenge movie? Or Switchblade Sisters a better gang movie? Coffee is a better revenge movie. From one to five, three meaning the flick's worth watching once, rate today's movies. Switchblade Sisters, three. Coffee, maybe four. Coffee's worth a rewatch. Switchblade Sisters, I feel like I've seen it. I'm happy. And on a second watch of Coffee, what would you be paying more attention to? The dialogue. I just think there's a little bit more going on with that movie. Pay more attention to Pam Greer. Maybe. Maybe do some freeze frames. One thing that bothered me about the movie was Coffee and Brunswick were out on a date within the first 10 minutes. They're just at a table. I don't know if they're at a bar or a restaurant, but there's just some woman topless dancing in a thong. Like, what kind of place is this? Where did he take her? Well, it's a place in L.A., man. I mean, you're from that area. It's all nasty, sinful stuff going on, even in restaurants. <laughs> I've never seen that in restaurants. I thought it was a little weird that Coffee could go on a date there, and she's not put off by yeah, literally a woman dancing topless, maybe a foot from the table. <laughs> that was what was weird about it, because at first I thought, okay, it's just two guys meeting, you know, whatever. That makes sense. And then Pam Greer shows up, and she's just like, oh, hey, guys, what's up? On a character level... I think that's a meeting of Coffee and Pam Greer. I think the actress, from what we discussed earlier, is sexually liberated. And I think Coffee is also that. I could see the explanation being she knows she's hot. She knows she's it. You could have a half-naked woman dancing nearby and she's not threatened at all. She doesn't care if Brunswick looks at that lady because at the end of the day, he's going home with Coffee. That's true. 